Hey, it's Veronica Dagger, the host of the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women, the podcast where women share how they tackle career, money, and the world. Today, we're joined by Emily Ramshaw, co-founder and CEO of The 19th. It's a nonprofit media company with a new focus. After a record number of women were elected to Congress in 2018, Emily and her co-founder, Amanda Zamora, realized there was a need for a media company that focused on covering politics and women and women in politics. So she started one, the 19th, with an asterisk. We called up Emily at her home base in Austin to tell us more about that name and their mission. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you came up with the idea for the 19th when you were on maternity leave. Tell us more about how that concept came about. Sure. So I'd been at the Texas Tribune for several years and, you know, really focused on building a brand new business model for sustainability and local news. And while I was on maternity leave and maybe had a little bit of time to think about things that weren't the Texas Tribune, it occurred to me, why had no one taken the Texas Tribune's really successful business model and tried to extrapolate it onto a national stage for the only thing I really cared about more than Texas politics and policy, and that was women politics and policy. So that's sort of where the idea first uh, came from, the first germination. Uh, But the reality was I had an infant at home. It was not the right time for me to think about making some kind of wild and crazy leap. Uh, So I let the idea rest for a few years. And it really um, was just about a year ago that I sat up in the middle of the night at a conference and was like, oh my God, no one has done this yet. I have to do this. And that was sort of the, the beginning. I came back from that conference Within a few months, I had uh, recruited uh, my partner in crime at the Texas Tribune, Amanda Zamora, uh, to consider coming aboard with me. Uh, She jumped at the chance. uh, And really, it's been this sort of snowball since then. So what made you start the 19th now? You know, I mean, a a whole lot of factors. Um, Obviously, when I first... uh, conceived of this idea. We were sort of in the aftermath of Trump had just been inaugurated. We had the Me Too movement. We had all of these women's marches around the country. As you just mentioned, you know, 2018, there was a big surge of women running and elected. And 2020 just was sort of, um, you know, no one was letting their foot off of the gas. There was so much conversation in this space. There were so many female uh, candidates out on the presidential trail. And it just finally occurred to me that I couldn't wait any longer to do this. Uh, The moment might pass. And this was the moment. So the media company is called The 19th. Explain the name a little bit for us. Sure. Obviously, this year is the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Uh, When we were trying to think about what name we wanted to choose, we were really thinking about suffrage being sort of a living, breathing thing. You know, the 19th Amendment, obviously so significant, uh, gave a lot of women the right to vote. But the 19th Amendment and the number 19 alone sort of didn't do it for us. The 19th Amendment really gave white women the right to vote. And it took Mm. another four decades before uh, women of color consistently got to vote during the civil rights movement. And to be candid, there are a lot of places in the United States where suffrage uh, really still uh, is taken for granted, or there are uh, women and people of color who are still struggling to ensure their voices are heard. Mm -hmm. So we settled on this logo that is a 19 with an asterisk with this idea that Suffrage uh, is a work in progress. The 19th Amendment is unfinished business. And in a lot of ways, we we want to take it back for all women. I love that. So there's clearly a need for more inclusion and representation. 
2015 study found that women only appear in about a quarter of television, radio and print news. And less than one in five experts cited in the news articles were women. What impact does that have and how come it's important to have more women and more minorities featured? So as you just noted, the news is already gendered, whether we think it is or not. Um, you know, around 70% of newspaper editors are men. 66% of politics and policy stories are authored by men. Um, almost all of those men are white men. And this is nothing against mm. white men. Mm -hmm. uh, but what that means is those are the people deciding what's news and what isn't. Those are the people deciding who gets quoted and who doesn't. Those are the people deciding whether the story runs on the front page or the home page or leads the nightly news. Uh, what the 19th is hoping to do is really level the playing field. And we want to level the playing field by raising the profile of and the voices of women in American journalism, elevating the voices particularly of women of color and women off of the coasts, and really advancing storytelling uh, that exposes disparities, presents solutions to advance greater equity, uh, really gives women the stage they deserve. They're not a special interest group. They're more than 50 percent of the population. So true. So how specifically are you going to address the underrepresentation of female sources? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, we are going to hire uh, a newsroom that really reflects the diversity of the nation's women. I think you can expect to see in the coming weeks uh, us announcing hires in a newsroom that is, um, you know, majority women of color. It starts there, right? It starts by elevating the voices of those journalists of color so that they elevate the voices of the people in the communities that they reflect. But we're already out on the 2020 trail. Uh, our reporter, our editor-at-large, Aaron Haynes, is really deeply focused on the Black women's electorate, you know, in South Carolina, telling the stories of Black women who play really an outsized role in determining the nominee. Um, you'll see us covering deeply the Latina electorate. You'll see us deeply covering Republican women in, you know, conservative uh, you know, Rust Belt states, um, we we don't call it flyover country. We're based in <laughs> Texas in the center of the United States. But I think it's really important that we tell stories that empathize with American women, um, women living in America, and really uh, tell their stories, let them uh, live and work where they are and have their voices reflected in the nation's news coverage. So I just want to go back to your days as a reporter. Did you ever have an editor tell you no on a story that you knew would really resonate with women? You know, I really didn't because I am lucky enough that I've had extraordinary editors who really understand the value of this type of journalism. It's it's also good for business, by the way. I mean, you know, if your storytelling really just is luring a male audience, you're leaving about, you know, 50 percent of possible paid readers mm -hmm. uh, behind. But no, I never really experienced that deeply. I think I think what I did probably experience was a reluctance to dive deep into storytelling specifically about women women in the politics and policy sphere, probably because I didn't know if there was an audience or I didn't know if those were stories that would be of interest to my employer. Um, you know, I think what we're trying to do at the 19th, there are a lot of stories out there around equity and women's engagement in politics and policy. We are trying to build a destination where they are the main course, not a side dish. Coming up, Emily talks about being a young female executive and the pitch that got her $5 million for her news nonprofit. 
If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM, let's create. Emily, let's talk about the work you do as the CEO of a media company. You're somewhat rare. You're a young female news executive. What sorts of things are you thinking about in terms of structuring a different type of newsroom that allows for a more work-life balance for journalists? The women who were my role models uh, in this industry really faced an enormous challenge when they decided they uh, wanted to start having kids or at the moment when they became really sort of smashed in the sandwich generation and their parents got elderly and mm. sick. Uh, I mean, the reality is so many American newsrooms don't offer anything remotely resembling the kind of benefits um, that both women and ne men need in order to sort of stay on the path to leadership in news organizations uh, and manage their home life. And we all know this burden disproportionately falls on women's shoulders. Um so, I mean, as I was thinking about crafting this new news organization, it seemed to me that the easiest path to keep women in news leadership and advancing to editors-in-chief or CEOs was to give them those tools and those benefits, was to say, you know what, we have six months of fully paid parental leave for new moms and new dads. And we're going to offer four months of fully paid caregiver leave so that you aren't penalized because you want to spend the last four months of your mom's life with her. Mm. Uh, and we're going to offer entirely remote uh, and flexible workspaces. We'll hire the best reporters for the jobs, but you can live wherever you have great childcare uh, or wherever you have the best family set up to take care of that elderly parent. It's a grand experiment, right? What does a news operation look like? When you really reflect the nation's women and respect them with the benefits they need to do their jobs and manage their personal lives. Would you elaborate on why the traditional newsroom model can be such a challenge for moms? Sure. Uh, I'm I'm a pretty good example because I'm the child of two journalists. My parents were both Washington correspondents uh, and my mom was doing it in an era where, you know, there was no internet. And so you couldn't, you know, get back online after your kids went to bed, you literally had to stay in the newsroom until the story was pushed through. Uh, and for most journalists, um, we all know, like the worst hours of the day in a newsroom are basically between 4 and 7pm <laughs> deadline news cycle, a sort of legacy of the print product. Um, if you're a parent, <laughs> as any parents listening know, those are basically the only hours of the day you get to spend with your small human mm. when they are like actually uh, half fun and um, <laughs> and like you're not fighting with them to put their socks on <laughs> on the way out the door in the morning. Um, so, I mean, I think it's just not conducive and, and it's really inflexible in most newsrooms. I was in a major American newsroom a couple of weeks ago hearing from women that basically once you become an editor, you're expected to have your butt in the chair from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why not give those women the flexibility to work from home and to get their kids ready for bed and then hop back online between 8 and 10 p.m. if they need to? It's we are sort of stuck in this old construct in an industry 
that needs to be entirely shaken up. uh, And that's what we're trying to do. What do you say to people, though? You know, they'll say that sounds nice, but realistically, it's still a news operation. You still have deadlines. How can you have this flexibility when you have to make those deadlines? Then you need staggered shifts and you need to budget for uh, enough employees uh, that when the rubber meets the road, you've got somebody covering it. I mean, look, not everyone is going to have the same home life. Not everyone is going to want the exact same hours. Um, You know, what we found in my years at the Texas Tribune was that we could shift things around. If a news editor with small children really wanted to be off between four and six, we could find somebody to swap in in that window. It's feasible. It's just you know, the way that we've always done things isn't the way it always has to be done. So what's it like to take the reins at this new venture? It's totally and utterly terrifying. (laughs) Um, I mean, I never thought I would be a CEO. I was a working journalist. Like I started covering night cops early in my career, covered city hall, covered state legislatures, dabbled in editing, became an editor in chief. Uh, This is a whole new arena from the standpoint of even just um, the budgeting and the fundraising and the corporate underwriting and uh, the events piece that's become so critical to everything that uh, we do in journalism these days. How are you learning all those skills or did you know them from the Tribune? Trial by fire. I really didn't. I mean, my uh, boss at the Tribune, the CEO, Evan Smith, is like an extraordinary magician with a Midas touch. And I've obviously watched him for a decade um, brokering these kinds of deals and relationships and really selling not just journalism, but democracy. Uh, And so I've taken a lot of lessons from him that I'm trying to, um, you know, uh, make my own in this new arena. But I think an element of fear is okay. Look, I worked for the last 10 years in one of the most secure news environments in the country. When I got this this idea in my head, this bug in my ear, I, I really couldn't shake it. And so, yes, it's scary. And no, I'm not sure it's going to work. And um, absolutely, it's an experiment. But I'm going on this adventure with some of the top female uh, journalists and news technologists in the country. Uh, I have an incredible founding team. I have a super supportive family. Uh, and, you know, if we end up in a position where we're eating macaroni and cheese for a couple of years, we're going <laughs> to stick with it and try to make it work. How did you get people to leave a stable work environment to go work in a startup with you? You know, I really preached this gospel. I told them what I believed. I told them what I thought was missing. Uh, I was really curious about the work that they'd done and the roles they played in their newsrooms. Uh, And then I went out and raised money. And I showed them, you know, once I had $2 million in the bank, once I had $4 million in the bank, once I had $5 million in the bank, I could say, look, I've given you runway. You know, we we have a couple years to try this on for size and see if we can't make it work. And by the way, all of you are so talented that if we fall flat, you are eminently employable somewhere else. <laughs> there you go. Shifting gears a bit. Given that the 19th focuses its coverage on politics, Emily, let's talk a bit about how the team is handling the 2020 U.S. presidential election. There are studies about how female candidates are portrayed in the media as opposed to male candidates. Basically, their personality traits get highlighted very often, whereas with men, it's often about policy issues. We have all seen this happen. So wondering, is this on your mind as we head into the 2020 race? 
Yeah, absolutely. I am not interested in the color suit someone is wearing. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in how high her heels are. Um, I mean, I think part of this is because I am the least fashion conscious person on the planet. Um, but also a lot of it is like so much American media focuses on those things that really don't matter. I am interested, though, in looking at both female and male candidates on the 2020 trail through a gender lens and asking questions like, why do the male candidates on the 2020 presidential trail identify themselves as sort of momentum candidates, whereas the women on the 2020 trail really identify themselves as endurance candidates? Or, mm. um, you know, what is uh, the role of uh, key segments of, of the electorate, whether it's Black women or Latinas, uh, in determining who the nominee is? I think those are the kinds of questions we'll be grappling with in 2020, although in relatively short order, in the next you know 12 weeks or so, we'll have a, a full staff of journalists who are covering everything from disparities around uh, women in the gig economy to, um, you know, the role of women in drug testing in the healthcare system um, to disparities in levels of representation. Um, we're really excited to build out a, an entire newsroom devoted to covering those types of issues. So you've covered politics for years. This time we've had several women running as Democratic presidential candidates and more women in Congress than ever before. But it's still nowhere near parity. Why do you think it's still so hard for women to make it into national politics? Look, it's grueling. I mean, and I think you have to start with uh, with reforms in the political system. I think truly, if you want to see women at those highest levels, you know, the um, the sort of prying eyes of your personal lives, the opposition research that, you know, digs through your garbage. I think women are uh, even more than men. Women are reluctant to put their families and themselves uh, under that kind of microscope. I also think, you know, we see uh, the hours in state capitals and in, you know, Congress are extraordinary. I mean, I've covered the Texas legislature for 17 years. And in that chamber, while they're in session, you know, there are legitimately day after day of 18 and 20 hour days where you're away from your families, uh, where you're living on the other side of the state um, from your families. It is a really hard place to be a parent, uh, Mm. let alone to be a woman. And so I think about um, those challenges in running and winning and then serving. Um, and, and I think about the scrutiny uh, that, that women are under in these settings. And then you really, you know, it all comes back to these questions of electability. We're still, uh, you know, on this stage asking questions about whether women really can win. And that's not just intimidating, it's insulting. Mm. Let's talk about money and the business side of things. You mentioned you raised $5 million in the first six months, and we need to note for transparency that Catherine Murdoch, whose husband James is on the board of News Corp., the owner of The Wall Street Journal, was one of your first donors. But as we mentioned before, the 19th is a nonprofit. So can you elaborate a bit more on how the business model works? So the business model is a um, an entrepreneurial nonprofit. And, you know, what that means for us is a really diversified uh, set of revenue streams, uh, everything from philanthropic and foundation support to corporate underwriting to a membership model that's sort of similar to, you know, public radio viewers like you uh, to an events business that is largely fueled by corporate underwriting, bringing women into, you know, direct conversation with their elected officials around the country. Uh, 
so that's a little bit of what the business model looks like. Um, this was um, hewing very closely to the model I grew up with in the last decade at the Texas Tribune, and that has been very uh, effective and sustainable on the local stage. It's really interesting that you're creating a startup now, especially in the industry such as journalism that's been struggling. What's been the most surprising part of entrepreneurship? I mean, I think the most surprising piece for me so far has been how deeply engaged women are in this idea. Look, I thought it was a good idea. My partners in crime thought it was a good idea. That didn't mean that, you know, the American women's electorate would agree. In the first 24 hours after we launched, we raised more than $100,000, almost all of that from uh, small dollar, individual $19 gifts to the 19th. We had, you know, thousands and thousands of newsletter signups. You know, we sort of quickly blew through even our year one goal. uh, And that was 24 hours. We announced a a six-city listening tour. And, you know, the first event was sold out within two hours. And we'd been preparing to have to, you know, really market these events to get to get women to attend. There is so much energy and enthusiasm around this particular idea that it's made being the 19th's first CEO uh, really rewarding and thrilling and fun. Sounds like there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm. Some people would say, though, there's so many other women-focused media publications, more coming online later this year. How are you going to make the 19th stand out and continue to stand out? I mean, we like to say this isn't the day's news, but pink. Uh, This journalism is really, really focused on advancing equity and really focused on the intersection of politics and policy. This isn't a lifestyle platform. Uh, This, you know, there there is no entertainment. There's no style. There's no fashion. Uh, This also isn't a publication specific to sort of, you know, women in the workforce or, uh, you know, to C-suite women. So, yes, there are products out there. Uh, There are really great products. We're, We're standing on those women's shoulders. Um, I really believe in this arena where women are still so far behind that more is more is more. uh, And there's absolutely a home for a role for an organization like this one. Will you be running opinion pieces? No opinion, no op-eds, no editorials. Um, You know, we we care that women think, but we don't intend to tell them how to think. Mm, Love that. So this is a big year for politics. But how are you going to maintain audience after the 2020 election is over. I think a lot of people do feel alienated and exhausted by the 2020 cycle. Uh, But beyond the 2020 cycle, there are so many critical stories to tell about uh, equity uh, for women, advancement for women, parity for women, uh, finding ways across virtually every coverage area, um, heighten the profile of women to make sure they're appropriately represented. We hope American women see themselves reflected in our journalism and that that inspires them to read more deeply, to get more deeply engaged. What does success look like to you? Success to me looks like uh, extraordinary readership, not just on our destination platforms and in our newsletter, but in news organizations around the country. So we're giving all of our journalism away for free, not just to readers, but to every other news organization in the country. And so success to me looks like, you know, a woman in El Paso on the bus uh, between job one and job two, picking up an El Paso Times and seeing stories from the 19th, or a woman in Boston making dinner for her kids 
kids turning on the nightly news and seeing 19th stories uh, leading the evening news. For us, it's not just about the pull of, of bringing sort of women on the front lines into our orbit. It's about the push, reaching women where they are and men where they are with public service journalism that really inspires them to think critically. Thank you so much, Emily. That was great. Thank you. This was the most fun. If you'd like to hear more of Secrets of Wealthy Women, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. If you like us, subscribe, share us on social media, and give us a review. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thank you for listening.